All right, why don't we uh, get started? Let's uh, open our time with a word of prayer together. Father in heaven, as we meditate on our fallenness and our inability to come to you, we're thankful once again how you've come to us in Christ, met us in our weakness with his strength, and brought us to yourself. We pray that as we study your word, you might help us to understand it aright and apply it well to our lives, uh, that we might give you the glory for the saving work that you've done. So help us in these things, we pray, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so today we're moving into um, talking more about um, the, the doctrine of total depravity and irresistible grace together. Um, so the, the T and the I of TULIP, which don't seem like they go together, but they do. Um, and so we, we've talked about the U in TULIP, which is what? Unconditional election. No, radical corruption. I mean, I think, yeah, there are different ways of talking about it. Total inability, total depravity, radical corruption. You, you, you have to fill out what you mean by the definition. So I'm sure no, one, no one's ever applied that to you. I'm sure they've only talked about irresistible grace when it comes to you, Bob. Um, so, yeah, but we can, we can talk about the definition, but it's mostly important to get down into the details and to figure out what we mean by that, right? So I hope I didn't offend you. I was kidding around. Okay. All right, well, that's a challenge. Um, we'll see about that. Um, we'll see about that next time you and I visit Lucille together. Um, okay, so back on track. Focus, William. All right, unconditional election, and then what's the next part of the canons of Dort? What do we touch on next? Limited atonement. I heard it somewhere. Very good. Okay, so limited atonement, and then we're getting into now total depravity and irresistible grace. Now, another way to think about this that can be helpful is if we think of it in, in terms of other ways of thinking about this is in terms of redemption. So if we say this is redemption, what would we call this? Redemption, no, not accomplished. Election is God's what of redemption? Plan, right? So you could say redemption planned when it comes to election. Um, then this is, Angela, redemption accomplished by the atoning death of Christ. And so what do you think these are together? Um, redemption, what would you think this would be? Applied. How does what Jesus did, what the Father planned and Jesus accomplished, get applied to us by the Holy Spirit? Um, and so the reason total depravity factors into that is how do we deal with the radical corruption um, the, the total inability that we have to come to God, how does God deal with that so that we can come into fellowship with him? How does the work of Christ get applied to the people of Christ, the people that God has elected? And this is done by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has to do it because we're totally unable in ourselves to come to him. Um, that's what we learn about total depravity. So we're going to look at Article 3 um, at the, in the third and fourth heads of doctrine. So if you have the Psalter hymnal, you can find that in the back on page 907. Um, if you have the Foreman Prayers book, it's on 271. And that deals with what we call man's total inability to come to God. So that's another way of talking about total depravity is total inability. Um, so the corruption is radical. We've already talked about that. It affects the body, the soul, the mind, the will. So maybe that's where you've heard that, you know, trying to emphasize that all parts of us are spiritually dead. Um, spiritually, rationally, morally, we're, we're compromised by our sin. 
Um, and that, that's captured when God looks at what creation has become in Genesis chapter 6. Um, and we see, we see that how, how badly depravity has deformed and ruined what God made good. Right? Because God, when God had made everything, what did he do? He looked at it and said, it's very good. Everything that he's made is good. Um, then man falls in Genesis chapter 3. And how, how radically has the situation been altered in, by chapter 6? We'll read in Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his hearts was only evil continually. Right, that's where we've gone from very good to only evil continually. Um, that's, that's the problem that we're presented with in Scripture. And so Article 3 of the Third and Fourth Heads of Doctrine gives us um, a good statement of what we believe when we talk about total depravity, um, when we're talking about total inability. How do we define um, that term? Well, we have it there for us um, in Article 3. So we read in Article 3, Therefore, right, because we're all fallen, because corruption has spread to us all, Therefore, all people are conceived in sin and are born children of wrath, unfit for any saving good, inclined to evil, dead in their sins and slaves to sin. Without the grace of the regenerating Holy Spirit, they are neither willing nor able to return to God, to reform their distorted nature, or even to dispose themselves to reform. So this is, this is the theory. We're fallen, and we're so fallen that there's nothing that we can do. Um, there's nothing that we can do to help ourselves. We're totally corrupted by the fall. We're conceived and born in sin. Um, that, that guilt of Adam is directly passed to us. It's immediately imputed to us. The corruption spreads from generation to generation. Um, and what are the consequences of that sin? Original sin is the fountain of everything else that comes out of us. And what does that make us? Well, it makes us unfit for any saving good. Um, now, when we talk about radical corruption, we talk about total depravity, we talk about total inability, sometimes somebody will say, but can't unsaved people still do good things? You know, sometimes my unbelieving neighbor will take in my trash cans for me or, you know, will, will help me in some bigger way. Am I really saying they can't do any good? No, right? I'm not saying that. What am I saying? You can't do any saving good. You can't do any good that will bring you back to God. You can't do any good that will undo the evil that you've done, that will in any way make up for things. You can't do any saving good. It's not that we don't do any, any good at all. It means we, don't, we can't do any saving good. We can't bring ourselves back towards God. We're inclined to evil. We exercise our minds, we exercise our wills, we exercise our emotions for evil purposes. Um, that's what the fall of man has done to us. We're inclined to evil. We're dead in our sins and slaves to sin. Um, that's what scripture teaches us. And that's important because what is true of dead people? They can't make themselves alive. Right? Dead people can't do anything to make themselves live. Um, that's why that image is important. We're dead in our sins and we're slaves to sin. We're also under the tyranny of sin. We serve it. It's our master um, without the, the grace of the regenerating Holy Spirit. 
Unless God intervenes, nothing can change this situation about us. We're neither willing, we're told, we're neither willing nor able to return to God. We're neither willing nor able to return to God, um, to reform our distorted nature, or even to dispose ourselves to such reform. What that's doing is cutting off any possibility that dead people can do anything. Right, because these are the little weasel, weasel word ways that people try to bore in some kind of hope for dead sinners in themselves. Right, so you're, you're covering all the bases here when you say you're not able or willing to return to God. You can do nothing to reform your distorted nature. Or you, you can't even do anything to dispose yourself to reform. Right, there, there, there's no little bit you can do. Right, some people always say, well, I'm, I'm willing and able to return to God. No, you're not. Well, maybe I can do a little bit to reform my nature. No, you can't. Well, what about if I just dispose myself towards reform? I don't even have to do it. Maybe I can just turn myself toward it. No, your dead people are dead, right? It's the fundamental question that comes to Ezekiel looking at the valley of dry bones. Can these bones live, right? Well, nothing the bones can do can make them live. Um, something's going to have to be done to the bones if they're going to live. That's why Ezekiel gives a really good answer when he says, well, God, only you know. Can these bones live? But if, if they're going to live, God's going to have to do the making them live. D- dry bones, right? Not even bones that are flesh, you know. Not just like Princess Bride, not mostly dead, but all dead. There's nothing you can do for people who are all dead. Um, if they're mostly dead, you can do something for them. Right, that, that's, there's a reason that's a comedy, right? Um, you're, when you're dead, you can't do anything to help yourself. That's the whole point of this. If something's gonna have to move, God's gonna have to move us. There's nothing that we can depend on um, other than that. Holy Spirit has to make us alive. Um, it raises the question here of regeneration, what it means to be made alive. Um, it's the discussion that Jesus had with Nicodemus in John 3. Um, you have to be born again. He says, well, you know, how can you be born again? How can that happen? Um, and it, it, it's something of a mysterious work of God um, that, that Jesus says, you know, the wind blows where it will and you see the effects of it, but you, you don't know where it comes from. There, there's a sort of mysterious work to the Holy Spirit making alive that which is dead. And God has to do that. He has to come to those who are dead and make them alive. So Dr. Horton defines regeneration as the Spirit's sovereign work of raising those who are spiritually dead to life in Christ through the announcement of the gospel. That's a really good definition of regeneration. Um, Another by Louis Burkhoff is the designation of that divine act by which the sinner is endowed with new spiritual life and by which the principle of that new life is first called into action. Um, and, and you see that in the Valley of Dry Bones, right? That, that he, he speaks to the bones and they, you know, the hip bone connects to all the bones and they, they come up and then they have flesh, but they're still not alive. Um, and, and what is Ezekiel told? He's told, preach to the bones. And then the Spirit blows life into them and they become a living army. Um, there's a mystery in that. There's, there's a work that we can't exactly track. 
as to the exact precise moment where the Lord made you alive and called you to himself. Um, where he, he brought us to that kind of spiritual life that, that brings us to himself. Um, we, we might know when we put faith and trust in Christ, but we don't know exactly when the Spirit enlivened our dead bones to live so that when the word called to us, we came um, and we became the army of the Lord. Uh, it's a work that's, that's beyond our tracing out. Um, it's that great work that brings life to the dead, right? And, and people have made mistakes in the past of trying to track back to when that moment happened. People have said, you know, I know when I believe, but when was I really brought to life? When was I really born again? Um, and we've encouraged people to say, if you believe you have been born again, don't go looking back for evidence of your regeneration other than your faith. The Puritans at their worst got into this business of trying to go back and say, how do I really know that I'm regenerate? Um, I think I believe, but how do I know I'm regenerate? And that's, that's a dangerous game to start to play um, because you're trying to find a certain evidence of an ineffable truth. And God's word always turns us back around to say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Um, you don't need to figure out when you were regenerated. But that regenerating work has to happen because there's nothing else that can move us towards our God. Only God can move us to him. We can't move ourselves towards God. Um, because even though we're made in the image of God and we still have the remnants of that image, although broken... We still have minds, we still have wills, we still have emotions, we, we still have those things, but they're broken. Can we use those things to come back to God? Right? Can dead people come back to God? Is there anything they can use to come back to God? And what, what the canons are going to go through and do is say, no, there's nothing that can help dead people come to God. Um, broken as we are. Corrupted as we are, there's nothing that we can do to come to him. We can't use the light of nature that's in us to find our way back to God. That's what Article 4 points out. Um, God has to act. We can't act from ourselves. Um, and we read that the classic text for the inadequacy of the light of nature is Romans 1, 18 to 25. Uh, where, where we read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. We can't use the light of nature to come back to God because even the light that nature sheds, we don't use it aright. 
It tells us things plainly about God, and we take those things that it plainly tells us about God, we suppress the truth and unrighteousness, and we start worshiping the creature rather than the creator. We start worshiping the creation rather than the one who created it. Um, We see the divinity that's evident there, but we chase the divinity in everything else but the the God who is actually divine. Um, that's what we that's what we tend to do, and nature can't turn sinners around. That's the whole point that Paul makes. It's enough to leave you without excuse before the Lord, but it's not enough to actually bring you to the Lord. Um, it's not actually enough to get you there. That's what Article Four of the Canons of Dort, Third and Fourth Head, is saying: the inadequacy of the light of nature. There is, to be sure, a certain light of nature remaining in man after the fall by virtue of which he retains some notions about God, natural things, the difference between what is moral and immoral, and demonstrates a certain eagerness for virtue and for good outward behavior. But this light of nature is far from enabling man to come to a saving knowledge of God and conversion to him. So far, in fact, that man does not use it rightly even in matters of nature and society. Instead, in various ways, he completely distorts this light, whatever its precise character, and suppresses it in unrighteousness. In doing so, he renders himself without excuse before God. You see the the fingerprints of Romans 1 all over that, right? Um, It's just drawing from that truth. So it doesn't mean we don't know anything, just like we don't say you can't do any good at all. We say any saving good. But God has retained in this world a certain understanding of right and wrong. And people who want to do what's right and don't want to do what's wrong. There's a certain sense of that in the world. Um, and every culture has that in a certain sense. Uh, one of the older translations of Kansador used to call this the glimmering of natural light that's left. And I kind of like that. The, the, little, the little sparkle of the natural light that's kind of left. There's just a little glimmer. But what is it enough for, to us to do? To know that there is good and bad in the world. And that you'd rather be good than bad. Uh, right? There, there's some sense of that. We understand that people who do bad things, the world tends to look down on them. And people who do good things, the world tends to uh, look up to. Um, We can learn certain things. We can know certain things. um, We can know that there is a difference between doing what's right and doing what's wrong. And there are people that try to dispute that, um, that say, you know, right and wrong is just entirely culturally generated. Um, It's just, you know, we, we, we establish a code of ethics just based on our common agreement. Um, but people have sort of disproven that truth, right? Because if you try to, you know, you you can always go to the Hitler example. Hitler is useful for a lot of reasons um, to say, you know, that was sort of the Nazi theory, that power made what was right, and their society decided that these are the values that we're going to pursue. And that was the defense that a lot of Nazis gave when they were put on trial for war crimes, saying, look, this this was the law of our society, This was the laws that had been adopted by our people. These were the orders that I was given by superiors. I'm just following orders. And what's right or wrong? The government decides what's right or wrong. These were legal things to do. So why am I now being charged with a crime? Um, And, you know, the world recognized in that moment, right, you've committed crimes against humanity, 
You can try to justify it any way you want, but that's what you've done. The, the systemic murder of millions of people is wrong. Um, that, that was what was fundamentally underlying that, that. There was that sense of what's wrong. Or, you know, C.S. Lewis saying, even thieves feel wronged when they're stolen from. Right? If a thief was out spending all day breaking into people's houses and came home and found that someone had broken into his house, he wouldn't just say, well, you know, that's the game. No, he'd be, he'd be upset, right? Um, he'd be really upset. We, you know, we, we, if you've ever met you know, ex-convicts, they'll say like one of the worst things you can be in prison is a, is a thief, to steal from someone else in prison. And you say, but didn't you steal from other, isn't that why you're in prison? Because you stole from people? And they'll say, well, yeah, but I mean, there's a code. Like you don't, you don't do that. Um, and, you know, so everybody has a kind of code. It's sort of the R.C. Sproul joke. If someone tells you, you know, that there's nothing, there's no such thing as evil, take his wallet. And then think if he's actually really agrees with that principle. Now, the standard for good, right and wrong, good and evil, might, might be slightly different society to society. But there is a standard. And we would say that's because there's an irrepressible mark of our creation on us. That some good and evil can be known. Right? Think about what Paul says in Romans 2, 14 and 15 about those who didn't have the law but still knew better. He says in Romans 2, 14 and 15, when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their consciences bear, also bear witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Right, they're not altogether blind. There's, they know that there's right and wrong. You can find that anytime you talk to someone and they say, you say, are you a good person? Are you a perfect person? They'll say, well, no, nobody's perfect. I think I'm a good person. Um, but they, they'll recognize that even their own standard that they have, they don't really live up to. Um, and that's just a way of saying we have some sense that there's a good, that there's a right and a wrong that people who do courageous things should be honored and people who do despicable things should be looked down on. Um, we, we have that, that glimmer of light, but it can't bring us all the way to God. It can't bring us to a saving knowledge of God. It can't make dead people live. In fact, we can't even use those things that we do have in the right way. You know, just, just before I was leaving for church, I was kind of glancing over the news and seeing, you know, what the news was. And there was an article sort of celebrating the courage of someone who was being the first transgender person to run an Olympic marathon trial. Um, and, and what, you know, what a wonderful thing that was, that, you know, that this man is competing against women, you know. And, and so, but I thought, you know, isn't that a perfect example of what we're talking about here? There, there's a sense that there's, there's good things, there's heroic things, but we can't even use the light of nature, right, to determine which are which. Right, that that's not actually an accomplishment of society to not know who you are at a very basic level in a way that that's never been a problem in the whole history of the world. That, that that's not actually an accomplishment, that's a serious step backwards, from how God has made us in his image, male and female. Um, we can't even really understand what is right to celebrate and what's wrong to celebrate. And that's an example of, you know, it's not the worst example of it, but it just was an example that you know, confronted me just as I walked out the door. 
that we don't know how to use what we see in front of us the right way. And we, we can champion things as goods that are not good. Um, we can't do what we need to do. Um, Calvin says something really helpful about the light of nature, how, it, how it's usable and how it's not usable. He said, it's like being a traveler who has lost his way in the middle of a rainy night. There's no moon, there's no stars, there's no light, and lightning flashes briefly on the horizon. And for an instant you see the way, but then darkness immediately falls again before you can even take a step. Like from time to time you see like that flash of what's true, um, but you can't really make use of it. I think that's a great way about thinking of the light of nature. It's not gone, but it's not... It's not usable to find your way towards God. Um, and it's because, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You can't find your way by the light of, the na- by light of nature back to God. It's inadequate to do that. Um, in various ways, we actually distort the light. Um, and suppress the truth and unrighteousness and just continue to stockpile our, our offenses before God. So nature can't help us. So what about the law? Can the law help us? Can the law help us to find our way back to God? Because the law is not like nature, right? The law tells us more about God than nature tells us about God. Surely maybe if we just hear God's word, it will help us find our way towards God. The problem is the law can't regenerate sinners either. The law can't make you alive. And that's the point of Article 5. The light of nature is inadequate to bring us to God, and the law is inadequate to bring us to God. Um, Romans 8.3 celebrates the fact that God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Right? The, law, the law can't do regenerating work in our lives. And, and why is that? Why can't the law help us, even though it is true and perfect and divine? Well, in this respect, what is true of the light of nature is also true of the Ten Commandments, given by God through Moses, specifically to the Jews, for man cannot obtain saving grace through the Decalogue. That's just a fancy way of saying Ten Commandments. Because although it does expose the magnitude of his sin and increasingly convict him of his guilt, yet it does not offer a remedy or enable him to escape from his misery. And indeed, weakened as it is by the flesh, leaves the offender under the curse. There's nothing wrong with the law. The law is true. The law is good. The law is perfect. The law is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Um... But what is the problem? The law doesn't give us a solution for lawbreakers. The law doesn't provide a remedy for lawbreakers. The law can only say, this is what you have to do. Right? That, that's the whole nature of the Ten Commandments. Do this, don't do that. Right? Do these things and honor God. Don't do these things and dishonor your neighbor. Right? It's filled with commandments, but it's commandments that can't get you to do anything. It exposes the magnitude of our sin. That's one of the things the law does. Every time we read it, 
And every time we compare ourselves to the law, we see ourselves for who we are. Um, the law makes that picture very clear to us. It exposes the magnitude of our sin. It increasingly convicts us of our guilt. Right? We, we see just how much we are lawbreakers by the law. It's constantly forcing us to examine our lives, but it doesn't offer us a remedy. Right? There's nothing at the end of the Ten Commandments that says, if you don't do these things, here's how you can get help. If you don't do these things, here's the hope, right? It just leaves you with the do this and live, don't do it, and you die. And I always think the most vivid picture of that is in, in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. When, when Pilgrim and Faithful are talking about, or Christian and Faithful are talking about the guy who came along and started beating them down. And, you know, beat them down into, beat them down until he was unconscious. And when he woke up, the guy was still standing there, and he started beating him again. Beat him till he was unconscious. He came, came around again. Guy's still standing over him. Starts beating him down again. And he calls out for mercy. And the guy says to him, I don't know how to show mercy. Um, and, and as they talk, they say, that man was Moses. And he says, I met him too. And he told me he'd burn my house down around me if I stayed in the city of destruction. Now, poor Moses, right? <laughs> Moses was a nice man. It's sad that he gets you know, put into this. But what is, what, is, what is the point that Bunyan is trying to drive home? The law can only tell you what to do. The law can't help you do it. The law can tell you what to do, but it can't help those who've gotten off track. It can only stand there and say, do this and live. And, and if you say, I need help, it can only stand there and say, do this and live. Right? And it wasn't until someone else came along who had holes in his hands and a hole in his side and told the law to leave off that it stopped beating the man in Pilgrim's Progress. It's not until Christ intervenes, but there's no remedy between us and the law. The law can only stand there and say, do this and live. Don't do it and you'll surely die. Right? There's, no, there's no hope from the law that the law can offer us. There's no remedy. There's no road of escape to the sinner. Um, there's no road of escape to the sinner. It doesn't offer a remedy. It doesn't enable us to escape. It shows us powerfully the problem. But it doesn't empower us to do anything about the problem. Um, and it doesn't matter how much you try to soften the law. Um, it still doesn't offer you a real remedy. Um, you, you can't live up to it, and it leaves us in a pathetic state. Because the law was made to be obeyed by people who were made to be able to obey it. Um, and now, what are we? We're people who were made to obey who can't obey because we're fallen. And the law comes to us and says, what a life I could give you if you would just follow me. That's why we can never, as Christians who have the right view of the law, talk about it in such a way that it becomes a bad thing. Right? The law is a good thing. The law is a perfect thing. The law promises beautiful things. Right? The covenant that was made at Sinai as a as an echo of the law that was given to Adam in the garden, promised beautiful things. It promised life everlasting. 
Read through the promises of the blessings of the covenant in the Old Testament. If you do what I tell you to do, when a hundred people come and chase you, five of you will be able to run them off. And when 10,000 come against you, a hundred of you will be able to run them off. There's no one who will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. Wherever you put your foot, that will be yours. And no one will make you afraid. Right? I'll, I'll bless your land so much that when you're farming, you'll be working to gather in all the harvest into the barn. It'll take you so long to harvest that you'll still be harvesting when it's time to plant again. You'll have so much food you won't know what to do with it. The land will just be flowing with milk and honey. And the Lord will be in your midst as your God. And he'll be dwelling with you and you'll be in fellowship with him. Like what the law promises is beautiful. The law is good. The law is perfect. The law says to God's people, what a life I would give you if you would follow me. And it stands there now to us as a completely unattainable ideal. It says, what a life I would give you if you would follow me, but we won't follow it. We can't follow it. And so God has to do what the law weakened by the flesh can't do. Make dead people alive. You see how that has to come from someone else? It can't come from nature. It can't come from the law. It can't come with any part of what we have to do. It has to be done for us. We are those dry bones who can't live without the intervention of God. And that's what Article 6 celebrates. The saving power of the gospel. What therefore neither the light of nature nor the law can do, God accomplishes by the power of the Holy Spirit. Through the work or the ministry of reconciliation. This is the gospel about the Messiah through which it has pleased God to save sinners in both the Old and the New Testament. The law says, I can't give you life. I can't give you life because I'll, you can only have life if you obey me and you don't obey me. And now the only thing I can say to you is cursed are you because you've not obeyed all the words of this law to do it. The only help is if someone comes to us with a righteousness apart from the law. Um, something else comes in in place of the law. And that's how, that's how Paul always talks. It's the law versus grace. It's the doing or the being done in Christ. You, there's only two ways to have it. Um, you can't do enough to save yourself. Um, you can't even try. Because the best you have are still filthy rags. Um, so so what, what does save us? Well, what nature couldn't do, what the law can't do, God does. Right? We sometimes, when we think about radical corruption, we think about total depravity, we think about inability, we're, we're so lost, and when we reflect on that lostness, we might be tempted to despair and say, who can make this right? Right? If my mind is ruined, if my heart is ruined, if my affections are ruined, what, what hope is there for me? Well, the hope is in a God who can make the dead alive. Right? The, the same spirit who was there when we had been put together from dust into a body, 
and breathed life and made that dust live. The same spirit who, rose, who raised our Lord Jesus from the dead, he's the only one who can make dead people live. And the good news is, just as impossible as it is for us to bring ourselves to life, it's easy work for him to do the impossible. That's the good news of the power of our God. What we are totally unable to do, completely inca- incapable of doing, in the least little bit, he can do entirely and easily. So there's no reason to despair even when we reflect on the level of our own cor- corruption. Because God comes and says, you think that's hard? The impossible is easy for me. Right? That, that's a lesson Abraham and Sarah learned when as people who are almost 100 years old, they're told, you're going to have a baby. And Sarah laughs, as all of us would, right? Um, Abraham had done his laughing earlier, but Sarah laughs now. Um, and, you know, we can tend to be a little hard on Sarah, but it's like, who wouldn't laugh in that situation? Um, and, and the angel says, why did you laugh? And she says, well, I didn't laugh. He says, no, but you did. Well, I'll be back next year and we'll see if you don't have a baby bouncing on your knee. Is anything too hard for God? Um, That's the hope with which we live. We don't leave ourselves in the hopelessness of sin, right? Um, I thought about stopping at Article 5 because I was worried about our time, but um, you have to go on to Article 6. You have to go on to the saving power of the gospel. What we can't do for ourselves, God can do for us. Just as easily as the Spirit breathing life into dust and making it live. Even as was miraculous the work of him bringing the Lord Jesus Christ out of the grave, that was still easy work for God. Nothing is too hard for him. The thing that's impossible for us, he does and can do and has done through the Messiah. That's the good news of the gospel, is that Jesus Christ comes to raise the dead. Um, That's the good news about the Messiah through which it has pleased God to save believers in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. To remind people that were scared at Sinai, there was another promise. That God had made a promise to Abraham. um, That God had made a promise to save sinners. um, To build people who ruined themselves. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what we're left with in the scriptures, the saving power of the gospel and how God works through the gospel and applies the gospel to us as the subject um, of the chapter as we go on. Um, so is there any, any questions about that? Um, is, the, is the righteousness that is ours by faith in Christ still alien to us? No, it becomes ours. We are in Christ and he is in us. That is Now the Lord looks at us just as if we'd never sinned or been sinners and just as if we'd been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for us. We accept that righteousness, but it becomes ours by grace through faith. It's a real righteousness. Um, and then God does the, the sanctifying work of cleansing out what is unholy in us. But the new self being united to Christ is really alive. There's a real righteousness there. It's just not our righteousness. It's not, it's not a fiction as if we're regarded as righteous, but we're not really righteous. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. He is in us, we are in him. That, that's really, as really ours by his grace as if we did it ourselves. That's how God reckons us. And then he renews those he redeems. 
So he then drives out all the wickedness out of us, but that's not the basis on which we're right before him. So, yeah, I mean, it's an alien righteousness in that it's not our work, but it does become really ours. Yeah, alien righteousness means an righteousness outside of us apart from our works according to the law, right? Um, so, yeah, okay, well, that's our time for this morning. So um, let's close our time in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for not leaving us in the pathetic state into which we'd plunged ourselves, but coming to us by the gospel, enlivening our hearts by the Holy Spirit that we might hear the voice of our Savior and follow after him. Pray that all that hear the gospel today might be effectually called to our Savior, that they might have life in his name even as we have, and that we might see a great increase of the church in our day. So help us in this. Thank you for the work of the Spirit that makes dead people alive. May we praise you for that work and hear us for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.